0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this week's episode, I chat with John Light and Samuel J.J. Gosling. We talk about DAOs, privacy at different levels of a DAO, Macy, and how new ZK and privacy tools can be used within a DAO context. This episode was born out of a recent ZK Sessions event we did where we covered this topic. Still, it's an underdeveloped space and something I think would be very cool for teams and communities, maybe even the ZK community, to be exploring. But before we start in, I want to let you know about the upcoming ZK Jobs Fair, It's happening on July 29th, and we will be hosting some of the top ZK projects who are looking to build their teams and hire. Most jobs will be technical, software, engineering, and cryptography focused. So if you are looking to work in blockchain and the ZK space, this will be a great way to meet some of the teams and get to know them as you apply. We host this on gather.town, an awesome video game style interactive online space. I've added the link to apply in the show notes. Hope to see you there. You can also always check out the ZK jobs board on our website, where we have an amazing list of open positions at any given time. I now want to thank the sponsor of this episode, Mina. Quick disclosure I'm an advisor to this project, and the ZK validator runs a block producer on the network. This is a project that I've been following for many years, and we've actually covered it on the show before when they were working under the name Coda. Now, Mina is the world's lightest blockchain, powered by participants. Mina is a layer 1 protocol creating a private gateway between the real world and crypto. The entire chain is about 22 kilobytes even as it scales thanks to zk-SNARKs. The layer 1 protocol replaces the traditional blockchain with a zero-knowledge proof, ensuring a super light and constant-sized chain that allows participants to quickly sync and verify the network. And snark-powered dApps called Snaps allow access to verified real-world data from any website for on-chain use. The ecosystem is growing fast, and Mina's mainnet is live. If you want to jump in, visit minaprotocol.com to find out more. So thank you again, Mina. Now here is our episode about privacy and DAOs. So for this episode, what I want to explore with this week's episode is the topic of DAOs and privacy. And this topic kind of came up in an earlier ZK Sessions event that I hosted, um, where we actually were looking at privacy in NFTs and privacy in DAOs. And I felt like the conversation around privacy in DAOs was really rich. And so I wanted to put together an episode which allowed us to like dig deeper into this. I have two guests this week who I think are going to be great to help explore this intersection. So I want to first welcome John Light who was previously head of governance at Aragon and is now working on community governance for Sovereign. Hi, John. Welcome to the show.
1: And thanks for having me.
0: And the second guest is Samuel JJ Gosling, a Tornado Cash contributor and recent addition to the Macy Dev team. Welcome, Samuel.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna. And good to be here with you, John.
0: I think we should probably learn a little bit about both of you before we dig into this intersection topic, the topic of privacy and DAOs. So, John, you worked at Aragon, and actually you and I worked together a little bit earlier this year on some ZK events. So why don't we dig in a little bit to your journey into the space of governance and DAOs?
1: Yeah, sure. So governance has been something of just a kind of personal interest of mine, pretty much for as long as I've been interested in politics, really, I never really got involved in like party politics. But I was always interested in governance and kind of the deeper, like underlying issues of a lot of the political problems. And so I started looking into governance, research, economics, to see how these subjects interplay to create the political dynamics that, that I was seeing where I live in in the United States and researching to see like, are there any like good alternatives to the, you know, governance systems that I saw as being like deeply dysfunctional. DAOs in particular were one of the interesting use cases that I saw for like more expressive smart contract systems. Uh, such as those enabled by Ethereum, and so in 2017, somebody that I knew was working at Aragon doing legal research for them, and she had mentioned to me uh, that they were hiring for somebody to work on community governance, and um, I was excited to see that, like, okay, you know this this technology that I've been interested in for a while, uh, DAOs. There's a team who's actually making like a a good, solid effort to like make DAOs happen in a way that, you know, is, is secure and easy to use. And it's kind of like the dream that, you know, we had in like the early days of the Ethereum project of like, you know, having like a point and click, just like spin up a DAO and, and it just works. And Aragon was kind of, I think the first out the gate to, to really like make that happen for people.
0: Were you kind of dogfooding it? Like you, there was the tool of Aragon, but there's also like you yourself were running DAO, like you were running these votes, I guess, and like trying to use them. Exactly.
1: So like actually using the tools that we were building to do community governance for Aragon. And these experiments started very simple, just like the very first experiment we ever did was just polling, so there was there was really no you could call it no binding effects of of this vote in any way it was really just sentiment gathering or polling on the blockchain and then the next step was to actually you know commit to doing what it was that the community was voting for
0: like the on-chain governance idea where you're like you're you're committing to something and then it automatically happens not uh not
1: not exactly so it's like it's it's like on-chain voting with off-chain
0: execution
1: yeah off-chain execution um okay where, where like basically we set up this process the Aragon governance pro- uh, proposal process where community members could write up proposals within a few different categories that we set up and then those proposals would get put to a vote and the proposals that passed, uh, the Aragon association, which was like the nonprofit that, um, was the steward of the, or really still is uh, the steward of the, the Aragon project would, you know, commit some resources to fulfilling the proposals that were passed. Mm. And then the next stage, uh, that we were kind of like working up to was, kind of fully on-chain governance where you would have on-chain votes and, and on-chain execution. So actually putting funds and smart contracts and other aspects of the the protocol under the direct control of the token holders.
0: Mm-hmm. A point of contention in certain communities, whether or not on-chain governance to that level is good or bad. I know that there's very different philosophies in different groups about, you know, how much power should you give in a way like the crowd over what the protocol actually does mm-hmm. um, without certain levels. That's cool. Did, did Aragon actually do that? Did it get to that point?
1: I don't think it's gotten to that point yet. We were pretty close and then most of the team left due to disagreements uh, with, with the leadership at the Aragon association. Um, that's I think the most succinct way that I could put that. <laughs> but i think that is ostensibly still the the ultimate goal
0: what what are you working on now
1: so currently i am working on community governance uh for the sovereign which is a defi protocol on the rsk blockchain i'm working on a, a few different projects uh over there but like one of the things i'm doing for them is I'm an editor of their governance proposals. So every time someone has a governance proposal, I will help them review it, format it, uh, make sure that it's clear uh, and make sure that it's internally consistent and um, you know, just kind of help shepherd these proposals uh, through the governance process. I try to do my best to like answer questions and keep token holders informed about what's going on and how to participate in the process uh, as voters or if they have proposals of their own. And I'm working on a few internal development projects related to governance uh, and the, the administration of the governance system.
0: All right, Samuel, I want to hear a little bit about you. Let's do a little background. This is the first time that we meet, so I'd love to hear kind of where you started and how you got to be working with Tornado Governance and Macy.
2: So it's kind of a long story, but I'll shorten it down. Uh, It started in around 2017 when I got a fascination for cryptocurrencies, mostly through it being a, let's say, an investment opportunity. That quickly evolved into kind of a curiosity behind the technology, uh, mostly with Ethereum. And I started, let's say, experimenting with some open source repositories on GitHub around, one was with a tip bot for Bitcoin and I ported it for an altcoin. It started very small, but eventually evolved into smart contract development and front end using React. And I was freelancing from the years of 2017 up to 2019. Uh, And then earlier last year was part of the founding team of a small DeFi protocol called Index Finance. And after that, I was kind of looking for my next I suppose, passion, and I forgot about how you know, privacy is one of these things that's very un- underappreciated or underscoped. Not enough people care about it, I don't think yet. And uh, I kind of thought deep in my brain, what is the one thing that has provided a fundamental, let's say, right to privacy on Ethereum? And of course, it was Tornado Cash, the same guys I saw back in ETH Berlin, back in 2018, surviving off grants. And uh, they recently launched their Uh, governance token torn. And so I made it my initiative to get involved. And that was just contributing through the forums. And it was actually through there, where the Ethereum Foundation saw me, the ZK Applied branch of the Ethereum Foundation. That led me to the opportunity of working with Macy, with WayJ, which has been an incredible... Experience so far, and it's only the beginning.
0: Yeah, and actually, we so Wei was on the show and he introduced us just, you know, before this episode. But he was on the show, I think, a year and a half ago, where we did do a deep dive into Macy. Macy coming out of the EF's um, applied ZKP group, working group, I think is what they called themselves. And I, I mean, what we went into, we kind of went into depth of like how it was built, where the like what the ZK does. And I think we had one use case that we talked about, which was like the CLR fund at the time. But I know that like one of the reasons that I wanted to have both of you on the show was that that combination of like a lot of DAO experience and these privacy tools, like I want to start to explore through this conversation, like how all of these things can actually work together. I was thinking maybe before we jump into the privacy DAO, it might make sense to actually give a little bit of a recap of DAOs in general because I, I'm 100% sure I've covered the term DAO at least like three times over the last three years on the show. But I do think like for any listeners who aren't super familiar with the format, with what it is, I think it would be good for us to define it. So I'm going to throw this to you, John, given your long-standing experience with DAOs. What is a DAO? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, talk about terms that are contested. Um, that That's a great question. Well, the acronym itself stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And you can kind of, I think, break each of those terms down and, and maybe de- debate exactly what they, they each individually mean and then what it means when you put all those terms together. But I think in practice, what... People are referring to when they when they talk about DAOs is basically a smart contract system that's living on a blockchain that is able to take in the signals or, or votes that are uh, cast by stakeholders in the smart contract system and then output some decision. I've heard somebody describe this as like a glorified multi-sig, basically, Mm -hmm. where where you have, you know, multiple people or, you know, users, entities, whatever, could be robots, I guess, but but multiple token holders in this smart contract system. And they want to be able to make a a decision together uh, about a state change related to that smart contract system. It could be the movement of funds that are held by the smart contract. It could be adding or removing token holders or increasing or decreasing the the weighted stakes of the existing token holders. Uh, It could be actually updating the smart contracts that are underlying the smart contract itself. There are a bunch of decisions that these token holders could make about this smart contract system. But in any case, the smart contract system basically exposes a set of permissions and says, you know, hey, these uh, specific Ethereum accounts have these specific capabilities to make these specific changes on this smart contract system. And maybe we also have some rules about how the rules themselves can actually change.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: and so it's you can kind of think of this as a way of encoding rules that before blockchains would have to be executed by like a human bureaucracy
0: yes lawyers administrators like some sort of yeah org
1: yeah exactly an organizational institutional entity with policies that are either in people's heads or written down on paper and then mm-hmm. they're enforced by either like just social norms or maybe even the, the actual legal system in most cases.
0: And maybe at the most extreme, the military. <laughs>
1: at the most extreme, <laughs> yes, by just raw physical force. <laughs> yeah. um, and whereas with smart contracts and, and with, with blockchains, we're now able to write these rules in code and have them enforced like a- automatically by the blockchain. So basically as long as you're able to get a transaction confirmed on the blockchain, and you have the right capabilities, according to the smart contracts, you're able to affect whatever change you're you're trying to make uh, within within the organization, provided you have the, the right number of, of votes and so on and so forth.
0: One thought I have about like, also kind of going back to your story, John, about the sort of working before at Aragon. And like, one question I have for you is like, has the has the vision for DAOs actually evolved a lot? Because back then, by by the way, interesting point, fun fact, it seems like we all got into it in 2017. <laughs> I'm also a 2017 adoptee to the blockchain community. But back then it was much more like broad or orgs would be replaced with these like very generalized DAOs. But I feel like what we see now, the most, I think I might've mentioned this on a previous episode too, it's like the most popular DAOs or the most like famous DAOs, the ones that are being used the most with the most value tend to be in a quite a narrow field. It'll be like a DeFi DAO making decisions about like the percentage coming back to the liquidity providers, like very like numeric, narrow decision space and there you have a very powerful, very active DAO. Would you say that's true from where you're sitting? Like, do you feel like it's gone from more of like a generalized DAO space to narrow-focused popular DAOs?
1: I, I I don't know if I would characterize it entirely that way, although I would say that, that there are, I think, more of those and, and perhaps some of the largest DAOs out there are more of that nature than I think people were envisioning in the early days. So like I got interested in DAOs back in like 2013. It was either Dan or Stan Larimer were blogging about this early on around the time of the birth of the Bitshares project. And and they were actually conceptualizing even Bit- Bitcoin itself as a kind of they called it a decentralized autonomous corporation. And the idea was that like Bitcoin was kind of like a decentralized PayPal. It's a payment system in a a monetary system that's that you could generalize you know think of as like a corporation of sorts that is just decentralized The, the 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 institutional infrastructure of the corporation is is decentralized so you have all of these people who are autonomously coordinating around this protocol to provide the service of payment processing and they were kind of trying to take that concept a bit to the next level with BitShares where you would actually have like shareholders in this corporation that would be voting on proposals, uh, and things like that of how to actually like upgrade the corporation and provide better services to customers and and so on and so forth. And then Vitalik Buterin founder of the Ethereum project, you know, started blogging around the same time about like, okay, how can we take that concept and then even go even further? To where you, you generalize the concept of the blockchain itself so that you could build any kind of organization on, on top of the blockchain and not just like a decentralized PayPal. Mm. And, and so that's where the, the concept of the decentralized autonomous organization, I think, really start, started to, to really be kind of shaped within the, the minds of, of the early you know, enthusiasts in, in the technology and, and there was a lot of creative thinking, I think about, you know, how this technology would be used. I mean, a lot of people, you know, were thinking on, on grand scales of like, oh, now, now we have infrastructure for like new global governance and, yeah. and we can solve huge, you know, world scale problems, uh, uh, you know, using this decentralized coordination technology and, you know, bringing it back around to your point, um, you know, what we've actually seen is that, that, that DAOs are perhaps you know most effective when they actually have like a very narrow goal. And perhaps even when their activities are primarily confined to only affecting things that are happening on chain. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, like MakerDAO, I think is is a kind of quintessential example of this. And, you know, for all of its faults and, you know, new faults are exposed, I think almost every year uh, in that system it's, it's a pretty well functioning system when you think of like, you know, its purpose is to create a stable coin and DAI has been relatively stable um, through several cycles at this point. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, on the one hand there, there is still, I think that vision for like, more human-centric DAOs. And I think that those DAOs actually do exist. I think the, for example, the Moloch DAO community that has sprung up around all of these different flavors of Moloch DAO. You see them, a lot of them are about supporting people mm-hmm. and not so much supporting protocols. Um, even if, you know, the people are working on protocols, it's still, it's still more about the people than it is about the, the technology. But then you also have these these other DAOs that are you know, managing large treasuries and yes. such that are primarily focused on on governing protocols, and so it, it's interesting to see this diversity uh, emerging uh, from the you know this core primitive that that is like DAO you know, smart contracts.
0: Samuel, I want to sort of throw it over to you because you are actually a multi-sig key keyholder of a DAO that deals in like it has a p- very specific goal in mind. I'm, I'm curious what you make of this concept, the idea of the generalized DAO versus the more specific DAO from yeah where you're sitting. And also maybe give us a little brief on what Tornado Cash governance even looks like, what it's for.
2: Sure. Well, I think over the past few years, DAOs have evolved a lot, you know, because like, remember back in 2017, there was little talks of decentralized governance per the DAO. And I know Moloch was maybe initiated it around then. So it was kind of a very new topic to the scene. And uh, not many people were familiarized with it or fully understanding the applications of it. And I I do believe we saw a huge because the only really conference I went to and I found a love for was ETH Berlin. And when I was was there at the time, everyone was obsessed with DeFi. Uh but there was this is DeFi without governance at that time. Uh, so it was a kind of a weird time. And I was in a different headspace to then I was trying to create little, let's say, new forms of governance that didn't use a token weighted model, more about reputation and like mm. someone's commitment. That's that was actually my submission to the hackathon. And so I think we went through a bit of a renaissance point with DAOs in the sense that you know a whole new direction was kind of orchestrated for them because when we looked at molik there was an entry requirement, you know, you need to have a specific amount of ETH to contribute to the DAO. It is kind of still DAOs are still pay to Participate, you know. The analogy everyone made was that you know, skin in the game. You know, that's the incentive to align with these DAOs, and that still applies today with tokens. But I suppose we've seen a more interesting initiation and issuance of governing power the past year. Even look at Uniswap, look at Tornado itself. These did retroactive distributions to past users, uh, which is has been a really interesting way of aligning people to participate in governance but also try many different protocols and it is very true that these are very focused on specific goals and let's say in the case of indexed you know it's about adding new strategies for indexes and then so i didn't even familiarize you guys with index (laughs) index is a a protocol for passively managed indexes on chain
0: This is the project that you were working on before all of this. Before before all this. Before Tornado.
2: I was on on the the founding team. And so governance in this specific, let's say, body would be aligned towards adding new indexes, uh, developing new strategies, liquidity mining. You know, it's all sorts of these incentives by the user or users. And that applies to token holders also. Mm -hmm. Um, So with there, it's more focused on efficiency and, you know radicalization of the protocol to create new strategies it's a very let's say focused towards focused towards a financial kind of edge in the market um, and you know there's things like in Index Coop, which do things a lot different differently to indexed i would personally say
0: you you just like when you talked about this tornado and uniswap post use airdrop yeah i it's so funny because i actually put, i'm putting it together now where it's like what what it did and just for our listeners who might not be familiar like both tornado cash and uniswap were non-token projects for a long time running with users and then airdropped tokens to those users who maybe used them to you know to different levels so if you had just sent one thing into tornado if you'd done like one uh, i don't know what you call it in tornado ca- cash but like a a, deposit, a, a mix yeah. <laughs> or deposit um you maybe would yeah. get some small token reward in this airdrop whereas had you been like very active within it or maybe contributing to the project you'd get more with uniswap it was like whether you were a liquidity provider or just somebody who used it to trade you would basically get a different amount and so here you actually saw tokens being allocated in differing levels to differing use usages right. and then I, I actually didn't put this together though Because if you're using the amount of tokens to represent your voting power, you are also distributing voting power to your users. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously, if you look at any sort of investment tokens from 2017, we can give that example, like people would invest in it, but it, it had nothing to do with the usage of it. Like the people using the project may be completely different from the investors. And in these two projects that you just listed, the users. Are the quote unquote investors, AKA the stakeholders who could vote? I find that actually very interesting. And like, I, I kind of want to dig into Tornado Cash with you. Sure. In terms of like, what what does Tornado Cash governance decide? Is it a broad thing about like what kind of contracts, what kind of libraries, or is it extremely narrow? Like, what is the focus of the governance?
2: I would still argue that Tornado go- Cash governance is still forming. Um, okay. It had a bit of a, let's say, Maybe a rough start I'd say in terms of issuance by airdropping path to past users as a lot of past users use burner accounts with Tornado Cash. Oh, so no. A lot oh, a lot shit. of that <laughs> allocation was not claimed. Oh crap. And so like we've had some votes so close to not reaching the quorum and you know it's so the actual issuance of tornado like the rate of it, which it has been issued has been very slow mm-hmm. um but it's growing steadily i may say um at the moment it's been kind of we've only had seven proposals but it was about most recently setting up the community multi-sig so that we can uh key contributors could come together and allocate resources uh, a per- percent of the treasury's resources to align the community as you know, we're pretty low on re- reaching governance participations quite low with the state of the circulating supply. Mm. And so uh, I've recently been adding to that multi-sig, was it yesterday? Um, so we are now using Snapchat for vote signaling since the creation of the community multi-sig mm-hmm. as the community multi-sig can pass proposals or create proposals, sorry. and. One thing uh, has been more, more focused on, I suppose, because it was initially laid out that there was anonymity mining. So that was giving an incentivization for users to use the protocol, uh, kind of like liquidity mining, except you deposit. And the longer you deposit, the more AP you, you gain, and you can swap that to, to TORN.
0: Anonymity mining. So this is this idea of you're adding extra anonymity like basically yeah. yeah like just to not have this is the whole issue with anything like tornado Cashers. whereas if you only have one say one person adding contributing you can easily figure Correct. out who that is so i had tornado Cash on the show but a long time ago before any of this yeah. so this is also a bit of an update there and you're using something called snapshot which i we did touch on on a previous episode about safe snap with martin from gnosis because i know that like there we talked about how like the Gnosis multi-sig. And this is maybe speaking to what you said, John, about a glorified multi-sig in a way. It's like (laughs) the multi-sigs become the tools for voting.
2: I'd like to call it vote vote signaling, you know, it's kind of like to get the sentiments. And then if the sentiments are good, they would be brought on chain then.
0: Cool. And it's also funny, I didn't realize, I, I didn't think about the tornado cache with the burner. <laughs> that's, that's so unfortunate, actually. This like kind of goes against this idea of like the fair distribution, the idea that like all the people who've used it will be like properly incentivized. In this case, I guess that wasn't the case.
2: Well, you got to take into context when someone requires privacy and, you know, how they want no accountability to that origin address. So it kind of makes sense. That's only a speculation, mind you. Yeah. Um, who, maybe these people have never claimed their Torn yet. That will become uh, invalid to claim in the next few months once we reach the, the year. There's a year cap on it. Okay. Um, but yeah, so Tornado would be more focused towards improving the protocol. Let's say integrating new features, rewarding contributors. And contributors could be anywhere from marketing to d- smart contract development to many other branches of what an organization would do mm-hmm. to uh, uphold itself index, as I said, it's more niche towards its utility. So it's the same with Tornado, as John reiterated, that these DAOs are kind of niche to what they do. And it's mm-hmm. uh, they're internal, you know, they're, they're focused only on their own sustainability and their health.
0: But they're also not replacing, like, they're not replacing necessarily all parts of an organization either. I, I know that like the way I always understood a DAO was this like, and also the way that I understood like Aragon was building out those tooling was like that it would be able to take care of all these different parts of what a company does, but using smart contracts and stuff like that. And now maybe it is that like we're seeing more experimentation or even just use in particular parts of that, that make the most sense for DeFi like projects.
1: I I think it's worth kind of digging in there a little bit that nowadays there's kind of a bifurcation of DAO. So I think using the phrase DAO to actually classify both of these categories uh, might even be a bit of a misnomer. But basically, on the one hand, you have people who are trying to replicate traditional organizations in an on-chain setting, kind of like using smart contracts to replace the LLC or something like that. And then you have DAOs that look much more like, uh, say, just protocols that happen to have some human intervention on a regular basis, like formalized human intervention uh, for like managing different parameters of the protocol. Both of these categories are are organizations in a sense, but like one just looks a lot more like an organization as we would recognize it based on you know our experiences working for companies and other kinds of organizations. Than the protocols, which which are much more, I think, anarchic in a way, and and also just very focused on that that very narrow use case of okay, you have this this protocol, it has some parameters, and there are these stakeholders that have some sort of aligned interest together to to ensure that the protocol is well governed.
0: Hmm. I think it's a good time. I might want to come back if we have some time later to some of the other issues that like come up with general DAOs and governance structure. I know we've just sort of scratched the surface here <laughs> in this intro to DAOs, but I do want to dig into the DAOs and privacy topic that I've brought you both here for. Um, and yeah, if we have some time at the end, we can revisit it. Now, I know that in the ZK Sessions event, John, you did this really great rundown of the the places where you could imagine in like in a DAO structure where privacy could live. And it's not even the, the verticals necessarily. It's like the levels, like how deep into the protocol itself privacy could be found. Do you want to maybe just share that with our listeners? Because I, I thought that was really useful as a, as a primer for this, this intersection.
1: Yeah, sure. What I was actually doing as I was <laughs> Going through that in the ZK sessions thing was was actually just imagining the Aragon DAP and, and going like <laughs> from app to app and thinking of, you know, basically each 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 of those sections of, of an Aragon organization and, and what could be private there. But so I think it starts with the actual stakeholders in, in terms of what could be private in, in a DAO. And I'll say maybe this disclaimer up front, which I mentioned in the ZK Sessions uh, show, which is these are things that could be private, not, not necessarily things that either should be private or, or things that, that maybe are technically feasible uh, to be private. But if you were trying to, you know, say, build a, a private DAO, from, from scratch, and, and you're just thinking of all the things that could be private, you would think about like, who are the token holders? So basically, you know, wh- what are the addresses that have the ability to interact with, with this DAO? What is the voting weight of each of the token holders in the, in the DAO? When there are votes, how does each token holder vote? And what is the you know the weight of each of their votes, and then you could start thinking of things on the on the DAO level where you think about what what are the votes actually about? What assets are the DAO holding? You know, it, it's it's possible to individually conceal what assets you're holding on chain today using things like Tornado, or like Aztec, but everything you know the, the assets that DAOs hold are 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 still completely public in all DAOs that I'm aware of today. What addresses are the DAOs sending payments to?
0: Oh yeah. Once
1: again, as an individual uh, user of, of of the blockchain I can send a, a private payment to somebody um, but DAOs have, have to send all of their payments in the in the clear today. Mm-hmm. And then finally uh, something that people might not think about, but what are the rules of the DAO? Could, could the rules of the DAO itself actually be private so that only the members of the DAO know what the rules are and how to interact with the DAO? There's an interesting new technology that's being deployed to Bitcoin right now called Taproot, which enables a technique called Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees, where you're actually able to conceal... The different paths of a script that that your coins are encumbered by, and so as a user of of this script, when you go to spend your money, you can choose to only reveal part of the the script, and and then keep the rest of the script private. Mm. And so you can imagine something with DAOs that would be that like this way where you know, maybe there's like some emergency protocol that stays encrypted or hidden off chain until the moment that it's needed so that it's harder for a, an attacker or a hacker or something to like figure out how to hack the DAO because they can't, they can't see the script. It's not stored directly on chain. That's just an idea, right? But like having the actual rules of the DAO itself uh, private, um, I think is, is something interesting to think about. But yeah, those are I think some of the various levels and maybe there are things that I missed.
0: I love it. I actually want to almost just recap it because as you were going through it, this is this is sort of what I was hoping we could we could clarify too, which is privacy for the stakeholder and it's privacy for the functioning of the DAO in a way, right? That seems to be like these two or like the like the DAO itself. Mm-hmm. And so on the stakeholder side, it would be like privacy of who the stakeholder is their voting weight and what they voted. And then privacy for the org would be what are the votes actually happening? What assets are held? What addresses this distribution may go to? And what are the actual underlying rules? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. One thing I just realized we, we should probably do is discuss why we would even want privacy. And then are there tools that are, are there to actually create some of this privacy that we just kind of outlined all, at all these different levels? So let's start with, like, should we have privacy? Why do we even want it? Is it super necessary? I wonder, Samuel, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think we need privacy? (laughs) You do work on a few privacy-related projects, so I feel like you might.
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, I actually came up with some, like, points of sensitivity of a DAO that could be privatized for such reasons as collusion from voting. Mm -hmm. So when someone votes in a DAO, their action... Is public and also the outcome of that action so whether they voted for a proposal or rejected that proposal is completely public everyone can see that therefore bribery is almost incentivized as you can prove actions so private voting would be very suitable to inhibit collusion or let's say decrease the chances of it occurring uh, as no one can prove the execution of an action they can prove the execution of an action but not the underlying let's say decision taken within that action.
0: And by collusion, in this case, you mean the idea of a number, do you you sort of mean like entities forcing other people to vote in a certain way? Or do you mean like cabals kind of getting together? Or like, what does that mean exactly?
2: Collusion could either be internal or external. So internal collusion would be participants would collude together to try incentivize a certain outcome. And that could be done through bribery or blackmail, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's very open-ended. An external could be applied similarly, but it could happen in either way. And so the aim there would just be to completely anonymize the action of a vote. And using zero knowledge, that is possible. For example, in Macy. we should come back to that in a bit, but liability is also a very sensitive point within a DAO because some DAOs specialize in certain functions for example, DORG, if you've ever heard of it, or DORG, is for smart contract development. And I only thought about this maybe a few nights ago because my friend used to actually work for them. If one of those delegates or participants is applied to co- develop a smart contract and that smart tra- contract is then used in production and creates complications, is the developer who authored that liable and not the DAO itself? You know, there will be a, a trace there. And so I think that if the DAO could privatize the details of executions uh and keep that actor anonymous over its consensus reached on delegating that actor and it also payment, as John previously said, you know, these would be two links to the creator in that DAO, or let's say the participant in the DAO. And that was only just one place where I thought it could be quite controversial because, you know, smart contracts are quite expensive things to develop, but also they maintain certain structures that may hold a lot of assets. And then thirdly, which we've already kind of touched on, is assets under management. And I think that in certain DAOs, it only applies. I don't think it's applicable in every single form out there today. But let's say uh, an investment DAO may have, say, some complications in building positions or liquidating positions in a selection of assets, as they could influence markets through those actions. And then also, I know it was touched lightly in the zk sessions. Uh, bidding or selling on non-fungible assets could be an also uh, another point that would be interesting. But then also, with a- assets under management, they could be targeted to attack if they hold large positions in multiple assets.
0: I feel like you just you just outlined another level. In the sort of framing that John had first articulated, which is this, John, you you mentioned the like privacy of the rules, the underlying rules, and Samuel, what you're suggesting is like privacy of the creator of those rules, <laughs> almost who contributed to that, who deployed it. Who I do feel like that is almost like sitting underneath that. It's it's who built the DAO. It's basically privacy of the creator of the DAO.
2: Well, not not really that. It's more about like say. Me, Anna, Sam, and John create a DAO. We delegate the task of creating a smart contract to, to John. John creates a smart contract, which we're affiliating to a different party. That smart contract has an exploit. You know, is John accountable or is the DAO accountable? That's mm. what I was trying to get into. And I think the D- is the perfect kind of example there. I'm not too sure how they handle this, but it could be something that it could be susceptible to.
0: I guess there you're talking also about more like anonymizing who performed something and it's not necessarily saying that like everyone in the org is unknown but the entire this is sort of the decentralized idea like everybody is somehow responsible exactly It's,
2: it's the body it's represented by the body and not the actor and i think that's
0: important so you've mentioned now a few reasons why privacy would be useful i think the example of collusion is very very clear um i think the idea of the responsibility within an org. Personally, I think that would almost need to be thought through more. Like, I, I wonder if that is something that that people are super ready for, like to to take that responsibility as an entire organization for an individual's bug potentially. Like, I,
2: I don't think organizations are prepared for collusion. If you ask me, uh, even multisigs, a lot of multi-sigs don't have time locks. I know lots of people contest this, and funny enough, we've actually been looking for one for Tornado Cash. Community multisig because we there was some scrutiny over the current structure and you know I tried to do some research over some formal projects trying to create a time lock that is dependent on token holders and uh, I saw recently with Tally if you've ever heard of them their governance platform they're creating this uh, Gnosis time lock structure called Safeguard so it's really interesting and so the Tornado Cash community multisig colludes and tries to take some assets. There's obviously a time lock on the execution. Token holders can intervene and stop the action from happening.
0: Okay, so this is a mitigation, but this this doesn't have that much to do with privacy though.
2: It doesn't. But it helps it helps like prevent collusion. So that's why it was kind of relevant. But I do say that yeah, DAOs are not really prepared for collusion. That's what I'm trying to tie into. There's multiple multisigs that probably could participate in collusion.
0: I see. Are there other reasons why privacy at maybe some of these levels would be very important? Like, why do we even care about this topic? And I I mean, I have an an example here, which is like, if you're a business, if you are an actual functioning business and you want to start to incorporate a DAO into your work that maybe doesn't deal just with like a public facing negotiating a percentage of a fee, that's one thing. But if you're talking about like revealing your entire treasury that maybe isn't, initially public, but you want to use a DAO, you want to have the immutability of a DAO, but you don't necessarily want to reveal to the entire world everything that you have. Potentially, if you are paying a supplier through this DAO, like making a decision for assets being paid out to supplier, and maybe you've had negotiations with other suppliers, and it would be really weird for everyone to see what you paid. I mean, just this is sort of the regular kind of doing business type stuff, like you don't necessarily want all features of the business to be public. But yeah, John, do you have any, like, do you have any kind of like other ideas for why we should want privacy for any of these things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a great example right there is that not every organization is public by default, you know, either is or should be. And and in fact, I, I think probably most organizations in the world are not public uh, organizations. Hmm. And so, yeah, for various reasons, whether that's the privacy of their own finances or the privacy of the people that they are making payments to doing business with privacy might be valuable for various reasons. That's at the, the, the organizational level. Another thing is, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, like if you're able to actually hide the rules of the, the DAO itself, this could be useful as a security measure, because if you can't see the code, then you can't exploit it. So that might be one aspect. And I mean, at the level of people participating in the organization, I think it's useful just for various individual privacy reasons, like You know, you might not want everybody that you make a payment to, to also know like all of the organizations that you've ever interacted with, you know, a lot of this stuff in certain jurisdictions might have, you know, questionable legal standing. And so what might be permissible today might not be permissible tomorrow. And so you don't want this history attached to your addresses that, that might be called into question at a later date because um, certain, you know, certain jurisdictions aren't shy about you know, retroactively punishing people for things that weren't illegal in the past. And so, yeah, just for you know, legal or regulatory reasons, you might want more discretion over the, the information that's linked to, to your addresses. Those are a few reasons that, that come to mind for me on top of the ones that, that you all have already mentioned.
0: In having this conversation, like you said, sort of your preface to all of this was, here's why we want privacy. Here's what you could, where you could add privacy, but it's not necessarily that we should or can. And I think that this conversation is definitely just like an exploration of where in the stack this is possible. Not to say that like it would actually be in a regulatory framework that it actually would be. Like there are certain things, like for example, if you were to create an entirely private Intransparent DAO on every level, and that it was used for horrible, horrible things. I think that would be very, very bad for all purposes for like, and I think this is something that anyone in the privacy community or people arguing for privacy should hold dear that like, of course we want smart privacy, but we don't want crime privacy ever.
1: The thing is, is that like the same tools that criminals use for privacy are going to be the same tools that the normal person will be using to protect their own privacy. This goes back to the age old, you know, crypto wars, kind of back when crypto meant cryptography, you know, discussion uh, over consumer grade, strong encryption, PGP in the early nineties. More recently, the, the discussion has come up because of Apple encryption or Signal. Like these tools don't have back doors. And this is, this is a good thing for the normal law-abiding end users who just want privacy. Because if they had a back door, the back door would almost certainly be exploited by criminals, by authoritarian governments, by maybe not even necessarily authoritarian governments, but just bad actors within an otherwise well-functioning government. There have been plenty of examples of that within first world democratic regimes. And so I think it's important that whatever level of privacy that we give to people, that it be the strongest level of privacy uh, possible, because that is going to be what what protects them from these other bad actors who would want to get access to that information and and exploit it for, for personal gain. And we have to, I think, accept that bad actors are also going to use that technology themselves to conceal their activities and that anybody who's, who's interested in countering those activities, whether it's law enforcement, private investigators, whoever has an interest in fighting bad actors, they're going to have to find other ways of of tracking these people down they, they cannot rely on mm. backdoors or golden keys or any sort of flaws that would allow them to penetrate the the encryption in in these technologies because if we had that then then everybody else who's using those technologies would be
0: vulnerable yeah but going back to the DAO part in this case, we're not talking about an individual per se. We're, you know, we're talking about an organization. Would you say from the list of places that there could be privacy, are there some that you would say are most important? Like, would it not make sense to maybe have like, certain levels of privacy that are so fundamental that they must be built at the origin of this protocol in the thinking and construction of an organization, whereas there are some other parts where transparency could be very beneficial? And so we do want to leave some public
1: yeah, I would say it's up to the organization to decide that for themselves. But I would, you know, if one was asking me for advice, I would say you probably definitely want to do what you can to prevent collusion, because this could just undermine the effective governance of your system, uh, your your yeah. organization. You know, if people are you know able to collude or be coerced into colluding. I think having an environment where everybody's votes are are public, publicly linkable to their known addresses is a is a recipe for for toxicity because you know people can look at the votes and you know say, Hey, why didn't you vote, you know, the way that I would prefer you to vote? Um and and you know, apply pressure to people this way. And especially in organizations that are hierarchical to do to a degree, it could exacerbate uh, power imbalances that 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 already exist, and so you know, I would I would definitely say you know at the very least uh, try to figure out you know voter privacy and and anti collusion mechanisms.
0: So let's dig into one of these. Samuel is working on Macy, which we had covered on the show. I'm kind of curious, Samuel, like listening through those those different levels and like where privacy could be used, like help us understand Macy. Let's dig into that and how that could be a tool in this theoretical private DAO that we're talking about. And maybe what level, because I don't think it it doesn't protect against everything. eh? It's just, it's like one, it helps with one piece.
2: One piece, correct. So it's basically around voting. That's what's more specified Mm -hmm. towards anonymizing, privatizing, sorry. Uh, And so Macy stands for the minimal anti-collusion infrastructure. It was proposed by Vitalik back in 2019, looking at the ETH research post. And so it wants to inhibit collusion resistance. So it doesn't want anyone but the coordinator to be certain of the validity of votes. And basically, so the way that Macy is structured, it has a coordinator who, let's say, coordinates the whole structure. And unfortunately, right now, if the coordinator needs to be honest for Macy to work effectively, if the coordinator is dishonest, then the whole system is not going to work as it intended. But it exhibits collusion resistance because no one but the coordinator can be certain of the validity of reducing the effectiveness of bribery. But also, no voter may prove their vote to external parties par- except the coordinator. Uh, it's uncensorable. It provides privacy, uh, unforgeability, the correct execution of votes. So not even the coordinator can mess with the execution of votes. Mm-hmm. And so I'll kind of go into a little top level description of how it works. Um, it requires a trusted setup uh, as much, many zero knowledge kind of, or zk Snack systems do. And this would create keys for the coordinator to operate within the system. And there's also two other contracts. So we have the gatekeeper contract, which basically... Is using the registration of users to the system so any deployment of macy could configure it so that only individuals holding a certain erc 721 or erc 20 or is a part of a DAO, could sign up to macy and so there's a sign up period in which people can sign up to vote in that deployment of macy that is a limited time frame so if you can obey the conditions set out in that gatekeeper contract you can register within the sign-up period. And then also there's a, a voice credit proxy contract, which you can define how voting weights are defined within, among participants. And as we see with CRL fund, it's using quadratic voting. It could be a token weighted. It could be one individual one vote model. It's completely up to anyone's preference.
0: Are the addresses actually unknown in this? Or, like, or are those public? Like the the individual voters, Like is that a transparent thing where you can say these voters are in it but we don't know how they vote or the weight of their vote? Or is it, we don't even know who they are?
2: So the voters who participate with the system are known because they have the the broadcast transactions too, Macy. Uh, It's the outcome of their actions that is not known. And that's how it inhibits collusion because they cannot prove that they voted in a certain way. But uh, I can give you a little example of how how it works. So imagine we have Alice and Bob and Alice signs up to Macy during the sign-up period. Let's say a poll A comes up and Bob approaches her and says, I want you to vote, vote against poll A and I'll, for some sort of agreement, yeah. either compensation in the form of...
0: Either carrot or stick. Yeah. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and with the way that Macy works is that individuals publish messages, which are like encrypted commands, And inside a command, you can either change your key pair, so you can change your voting address, and you can also vote. So you could do this in the same transaction. And so this is how you would prevent bribery, is that in the same transaction, you vote for what that briber would want, or maybe not, because they will never know. But in the same transaction, you change your voting address. Mm. And therefore, if you want to void that initial vote, you then vote from the new address, which It invalidates the other action and therefore it becomes, it's not viable anymore. And then the briber will never know if it's actually been confirmed
0: or it hasn't. Do you prove that you vote? Like if there's this person putting pressure on you, can you actually show, oh, I did vote the way you wanted me to? At least it looks like it.
2: They don't know that. You could still send a transaction hash and say, oh, yeah, I've done what you've asked. But they can never know if you actually have because you could just broadcast a transaction from that new address that you just set and just void that vote. Um, and then the coordinator comes afterwards and tallies the votes. And as I said previously, the coordinator cannot mess with that tally of votes. Uh, they could potentially not tally the votes, which would probably halt the system and we can't go forward to figure out the outcome of the vote. But like, that's the only way they could stop the system if they're like, okay, I'm not gonna touch this. That's how they could intervene at the moment. But they cannot affect the execution of the votes, the tallying, like the actual results nice. to what they tally to. And I suppose in a distant future, we're hoping to and hopefully my participation in Macy will be decentralizing the coordinator and completely making that a a non-human position, I suppose, a non-human operator position. And that's how kind of Macy inhibits collusion or at least reduces it.
0: To bring it back to that list of levels, so basically this covers two out of the three places in which privacy could exist for the shareholders or stakeholders or voters. Currently, the address is public still, but the voting weight and each and the way the vote went is private. Correct. Um, when you're talking about the coordinator, just for the listeners, the coordinator is actually more in the mechanism. This isn't in a DAO setup. This is in the SNARK itself there is a coordinator that you're saying is currently a centralized entity that like if that coordinator was in, in some way corrupted then this entire kind of awesome system doesn't work
2: doesn't work as intended is probably the right description because you know people can still vote the specific ways the coordinator cannot mess with the way that people vote but they he could decide not to process those votes and therefore stop the system
0: i see okay the coordinator could break it but they wouldn't necessarily reveal the underlying data
2: it's unforgeable so they cannot manipulate it or the only thing they could do is saying you know put the hands up and say i'm not doing any more further actions to stop this process um so at the moment that's that is the sensitive point of macy and it's definitely somewhere i would like to work on in the future is removing that and making a completely permissionless process where we don't need to depend on a honest human to uh, execute the system.
0: Would you call Macy a product or would you call it a architecture? I know that it, it is developed and like it is implemented and people can use it for like CLR fun stuff. But like, is this something that could be replicated? Is this something that you would almost like love to see re-implemented? Is it still in the design space? Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious what you call Macy. Like, what is it?
2: I, I was having this discussion with Ray J when we kind of... On my, our first call, and, you know, I, I came out to call it kind of like a standard, but that wasn't obviously yeah. effective there. But it's definitely a piece of an architecture, a component that you could integrate to your architecture. I wouldn't say it's a product per se. It's very, yeah. you know, and it, it's very configurable to your own preference. And so and I think that's the whole the whole incentivization behind the Ethereum Foundation supporting the development of this is to have it integrated in many different forms of governance after it's been produced. And it can be integrated at its current state now, but it has a lot of, let's say, constraints. And then also it depends on where you integrate it, because if you integrated this on mainnet, you would be paying a lot of money to even operate this thing. And so L2 is probably the only solution right now within that sort of cheap bracket of maintaining it. Uh, we, we do know that CRL fund, I'm not too sure of the architecture behind how they have integrated Macy. I presume it's L2. I know Gitcoin actually had some relevance with it too.
0: But I don't think they implemented Macy yet. They they do quadratic funding, but they don't do. I asked WageHate last time, unless it's changed. But I, I have a feeling, I mean, they're now working with um, ZK Sync, which is an uh, L2. But I, as far as I know, like there's no ZK tech other than zk sync which is yeah just to go on you know onto the l2 i don't think there's any zk tech under the hood
2: i know they were looking at it anyways so.
0: yeah yeah if there's any git coiners out there who have who say different like get in touch <laughs> and i'd love to hear about how you're looking to integrate this or if you have but yeah as far as i know it isn't what i like about this is you know through this interview through this conversation we've covered like what DAOs are, why privacy is interesting, like the levels. And now we're talking about a tool that sort of aims to solve one part of that. I have a question to both of you. Do you know of any tool that could solve the other part, the privacy of the DAO itself, the privacy of the assets, privacy of which addresses receive? It's
1: a good question. I mean, I think that there are two potential paths here. One would be creating a DAO or something approximating a DAO in zero knowledge, using a like a zero knowledge programming language. Aztec, for example, is working on this programming language called Noir, which will enable some degree of programmability within their fully shielded uh, ZK, ZK rollup. I don't know how expressive the programmability is or or will be with Noir. So I'm not sure if you could actually you know, code up a full DAO. I think mm. that would be an interesting question to, to, to ask them. But uh, given that they will have a programming language, could be possible, if not right away, then maybe in the future. And then another possible way would be using some, you know, trusted execution environment magic, like Intel SGX magic, uh, where you have, you know, the smart contracts for your DAO living and executing in a, you know, in a completely private environment within these, you know, trusted execution environments, which, you know, some projects have started to experiment with for like quote unquote secret contracts of course, you know X, SGX has like a new vulnerability that comes out uh, every quarter. It seems like I'm glad you're um, saying
0: that. I was about to. <laughs> uh, our yeah, listeners definitely were thinking it. Okay.
1: Yeah, you know they're pretty notoriously, uh, you know, vulnerable to side channel attacks and, and, and various other exploits. But accepting that as as the bar, uh, mm-hmm. that is a thing yeah, other than that, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, taproot earlier. Uh, I, th- I think techniques like that where basically you just put a hash of your contract on chain and then you're able to selectively reveal parts of the contract when you're on the happy path and then maybe selectively reveal a different part of the contract if you're on the unhappy path. You know, could could be a way to preserve some level level of privacy at the level of the organization. Those are the ideas that come to
0: mind. One word that comes into my mind as like, especially with the what assets are here, is this concept of the selective disclosure. I talked about this, I think, a few years ago. I know Ben Fish is the first person who ever told me about it. Ben Fish is a a cryptographer and founder of a few privacy projects, but. What he had talked about when I first heard it was this idea of like being able to prove that you have something without proving how much you have or like basically being able to the selective disclosure, you'd, you'd prove like you fall into a threshold. So you do have between this many like X and Y of a certain token, you have somewhere in a range, but without revealing exactly how much. And this is sometimes thought of as like interesting for funds or any sort of like if you had to prove something to tax authorities, you could actually do the selective disclosure. And here I wonder if there couldn't be some interesting tools. I mean, I I just don't know that there are any tools that do this yet. It's more like there's currently protocols being like developed or thought about that definitely have selective disclosure in mind. But that made me think of it, this idea of like, which assets do you ha- hold? Do you actually hold enough to do what you say you're going to do? Yeah, do you have the types of tokens you say you have? without necessarily revealing which ones they are.
2: I can't think of anything that comes to mind that is trying uh, trying to develop something, but like you said selective closure, disclosure and keep their assets privatized from the public. I don't know anything at this moment that is working towards that or has let's say a tangible lead on it because it is kind of a, a topic that needs to be, it's, it's a topic I, I wouldn't even myself know how to start tackling.
0: Although I would say, if if there was to be a tool, I feel like it would come out of the Applied ZKP group, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you guys are <laughs> doing amazing experiments in there.
2: Definitely, uh, and funny talking about the Applied ZKP branch. Semaphore, uh, if you've ever heard of it, or Semaphore, Sem- it Sem- was Sem- another Semaphore. Yeah, Semaphore. Correct, correct. That's another place where you can privatize voting as well. Wei um, J worked on it previously. So it, it is uh, worthy to mention that also. And it also has some other utilities too, as in mixers. And another one was private logins as well. It was an authentication, which is another application of it. But for assets under management, I definitely, it's a very, I can't confidently say that I see anything on the horizon that will solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously because, you know, we have ZK roll-ups and L2s and that's not going to solve that. It's really only for scalability. And actions within that l2 and not bridging over Mm -hmm. which would sacrifice privacy Um, i do think liability is definitely something about let's say you could use zero knowledge in in the fact that we are delegating a task to someone and but not revealing who that person is even if they're in the organization or not i think that could could definitely be solved with zero knowledge uh i don't know anyone kind of working on that it seems in theory though it could be applied
0: I mean, this is the point of this episode is also to, you know, share with folks the design space. And obviously, if anyone's interested in jumping in on something like this, there's a lot of work to be done to think through some of these things. Definitely, I do hope that people do kind of walk away from this understanding why having privacy within some of these infrastructure, especially just picture like if the if DAO like structures start to take over really important parts of our world. Right now, they still live in the land of experiments and DAOs you know, DAO for DeFi, DeFi governance and financial tools. But like, what if they start to really be these entities, these powerful entities you know, deciding things in our world and things that we participate in all the time? Like, I think then this idea of having privacy in it becomes so much more important. And, and, and I think right now is the time that the experiments have to happen. And like, the things have to be tested, fleshed out, developed, thought up. Architected. And then some of them might fail, some of them might not make sense. But I think that, like, if these things do grow in power, which I actually believe they will, I think now is the right time to start thinking about it. So, one thing, like, sadly, we're at time and we didn't get a chance to go into the other issues facing existing DAOs. That's such a bummer. But is there any sort of thought or last thought that you want to share? that relates to that, like something that maybe we could keep our eye on to further that design space around DAOs.
2: I would have loved to brought in, if we got into that other topic, was uh, using the metric of the Banzoff Power Index in governance systems. There's actually one done for, for Moloch DAO that I think Jake Broomham of Coin, uh, was it CoinShares or CoinFund? Jake Berkman, yeah. Yeah, uh, he created a little website showing the Banzoff Power Index in Moloch DAO and it basically the Banzoff power index shows the ability of a single actor to skew a vote in any direction. And it's like 50% for the top two holders, or let's say stakers, stakeholders in Moloch DAO. I suppose if that that voting weight was privatized, we wouldn't even know the skew of voting distribution either. So
0: is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. So yeah, that, that
2: is yeah that is bad <laughs> because the DAO could just be a theater, you know, uh, as some DAOs are today. They they're literally decentralized decentralization theaters yeah. and not many people want to admit it but i mean
1: for a moloch i think it's probably not it, it wouldn't be terrible if it was private because if a vote went the way you know if somebody really disagreed with a vote then they could just exit right
2: so mm-hmm. and they had that rage quit function as well in moloch v2 didn't they
1: yeah that's what i'm referring to like you know even, even if one person controlled the dao if they tried to do anything like really evil people could just rage quit and take their eat out yeah
2: yeah Interesting.
0: Huh. I do want to say a big thank you to both of you for coming on the show and helping to sort of scratch the surface and dig into this problem space with me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the invite, Anna. It was a pleasure to chat with you and and you as well, Sam.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna. And it was great to go over some of the sensitive points of DAOs and where privacy could be integrated based on certain contexts as as we discussed. And uh, I do think privacy would become a more let's say, discuss topic going further into the future as governance evolves. Totally.
0: Cool. So thanks again. And I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.